Okay, good. Let's, uh, let's open our Bibles to John chapter um, 10. Were you surprised we were in John? <laughs> so last week uh, we began looking at the, well really one of the most delightful and comforting discourses of Jesus as he describes his relation to his people, all those who follow him. And he identifies himself in really simple terms that common people can grasp and understand. And John chapter 10 begins with Jesus giving this illustration of um, shepherds and their sheep. And at the end of that, he says, I am the good shepherd. That's what we looked at last time. He says it twice and he follows it up with, with just what it is that actually makes him the good shepherd. And that's in verse 11 where he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So a good shepherd, if need be, sacrifices himself for the flock. And boy, is, is us as a flock needful of him laying down his life. That's something we need. There's no good pasture ahead for human beings that don't have Christ as their shepherd. Because we're corrupted by sin and there's no place of rest and safety unless the sin problem that we have is taken care of. And as they are, sinful men are, are doomed because God is holy and righteous and that requires sin be condemned. If God is holy, he's going to condemn sin in us. And it's necessary that sinners are judged unworthy of the kingdom of God. It's necessary for justice sake, for all that is good and right in the universe. So a good God cannot compromise with evil ever. So heaven can only receive those who are righteous. Problem. I am not righteous. You are not righteous either in yourself. But we can become righteous in God's sight because Jesus laid down his life as the good shepherd, paying the penalty of our sin. That is a glorious truth. And that's what this whole section is really about here. So he literally carries the burden of our sin in his body and offers it up as a sacrifice. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The second thing he says is in verse 14 about being a shepherd. He, he lays down his life for the sheep. That's the first thing. Verse 14 he says, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So he knows us intimately. We are known to him and we know him. We don't know everything about him because he's God but we know all that we need to know and we know that he's good. Pure good. Only good. Everything he does is good and right and true. Not just nice good, right? Nice is good between people, but that's not the kind of good we're talking about. Good, good has to be courageous and unyielding sometimes, right? It cannot compromise with evil ever or it would cease to be good. If good compromised with evil, it wouldn't be good anymore, would it? So while goodness is full of love and kindness, and that's certainly true, it's also ready to stand against every form of evil, every turn and twisting of what God has done and made and turning it to something corrupt. All the rebellious acts of human beings and the rebellious nature of man against God. Good stands against that part of us. So Jesus is a truth speaker and fiercely loyal to the Father and courageous and standing up for the truth while at the same time 
He is deeply compassionate to those who are lost. Lost in their own rebellion against heaven. He cares about them. That's why he laid down his life. So he makes a way for us to be reconciled to God. By laying down his life. And he knows us. It says. That means he knows our weaknesses too. And our sins. And our failures. He knows. But as the good shepherd. He only wants what's good for us. So he tells us what is right. And what is good. And how to be right with God. How to repent. And trust in him for eternal life. And when we do that then he protects us. Peter says he protects us from falling away. He keeps us. So we won't fall (coughs) away. So let's remember who Jesus is talking to in this passage here. He's responding to the self-righteous Pharisees at the end of chapter 9. So that's who he's been speaking to. They are blind. Not physically blind. They are spiritually blind. And in John chapter 9 verse 39 Jesus says to them for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him we're not blind too are we? Jesus said if you were blind you would have no sin. But because you say we see your sin remains. I can't think of three worst words in the universe than your sin remains. Because that means when you go before God in judgment you'll be condemned. That's what it means. Your sin remains. You are choosing to be blind to salvation so your sin remains. That's what he was telling the Pharisees. There is a judgment. God is pure goodness. We are sinful creatures. And unless our sins are removed, he will condemn us. Don't let yourself believe any differently than that. Because that's the real situation. He's a savior willing to save you. But you've got to see that. You have to open your eyes. So this is Jesus speaking. He says, since you say we see, your sin remains. So don't be so arrogant as to say, well, I get it. I get how it all works. And it has nothing to do with that. No, That's being blind. He knows and he's telling you. He's the only shepherd to those who follow him. He's a perfect shepherd to those who respond to his call, to those who see. He knows them, he says. So last time we stopped at verse 15 because verse 16 has a separate idea that I wanted to address today. In fact, there's two separate ideas I want to go through this morning really quickly with you. So verse 16, let's read it. Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So remember the original illustration in the first five verses of chapter 10. If you were with us last week, we kind of went through that in a lot of detail. But the illustration is about sheep that are in a sheep fold which is an enclosure right that's where you keep the sheep at night and I said last time that the sheepfold represents national Israel so that's the people of Israel and Jesus calls his sheep those that belong to him those that hear his voice those that open their eyes he calls them out of the sheepfold to come and find good pasture with him right because the religious system of Israel was so thoroughly corrupted that that was not a safe place for them to be so he's calling them out so The sheepfold represents the Jewish 
people, the Jewish nation. And when the good shepherd comes to the gate, he calls out his own sheep by name and they follow him and he leads them. Only his own follow him. But there in verse 16 we find out that, guess what, there's other sheep. There's other sheep somewhere. Sheep that are what? Not of this fold. So they're from somebody, some place else. They're people that are not part of the nation of Israel. So who would that be? Well, guess who that is. That's like me. One of those Gentiles. Well, when you, when you read the book of Acts, it's all about the gospel going to Israel and the Jewish people and moving forward, moving out to embrace the entire world. And the book of Acts is the only church history book in the Bible. It's the only one that has an actual history of the Christian church in its early stages. That's the only way we know about a lot of the things that happened in the early, early, early church, the very beginning, right after Jesus' resurrection. And it's the resurrected Jesus who, in chapter one of the book of Acts, is speaking to his apostles, and he's giving them new orders, and the apostles want to know when the kingdom's coming. They're saying, well, now you're risen from the dead. Where's the kingdom? Let's get it going. (laughs) Take over the world. Be the Messiah. The Messiah we've all been expecting. When will Messiah rule the world? That's what they ask him. And Jesus says, this is Acts chapter 1 verse 7. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And if you read the book of Acts after that, that's how it begins. If you read the book of Acts after that, guess where it starts? In Jerusalem. Then where do you think it goes in the middle? To Judea and Samaria. And then where does it go? It goes to the whole world. It goes into the Gentile world, right? So it's all about Gentile inclusion. The book of Acts is all about that. That's really the theme of the book. So it follows the Gospels, Jesus coming, and then Jesus gives that outline in the book of Acts, and it starts in Jerusalem with Peter's great sermon at Pentecost. That's in Jerusalem. Then it moves to Judea, and then on to Samaria, and then all through the Roman Empire, and the book of Acts actually ends with the Apostle Paul in Rome as a prisoner. That's such a Christian thing to end the book with your hero in prison. That's just so right. That's exactly what the Indian church is going through right now. I mean, that's, that's how the world reacts to, to the truth. Paul's a prisoner, but you know what the very last verse says in Acts while he's a prisoner? He's preaching, he's preaching, he's preaching the gospel. So he goes ahead and does that where he is. But the most encha- important chapter probably in Acts is actually chapter 15, right in the middle of the book. And chapter 15, 15 is the story of the first great church council. So there's been church councils down through the centuries in the early centuries of the Christian church but the very first one is actually in Bible times and happens in the book of Acts chapter 15. And what's the council about? They don't have a church council unless they, unless they have to work on some problem. Some maybe a theological issue and that was actually the case in the first council. What was it about? It was about Gentiles. What do you do with Gentiles. What's the church going to do with Gentiles when they start coming to Christ? 
And the question could be framed like this. In fact, it is very much what they were discussing. Do Gentiles have to be circumcised and follow the Jewish practices to be saved? Because there were believing Christians. Actually, in Acts 15, it says they were Pharisees that had come to faith in Christ. They, they believed that. They were teaching that. That they you have to become Jewish basically to become a Christian. So that was the issue they were going to talk about. What answer they, did they arrive at? No, right. No, that was the answer. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to be saved. They just have to believe in Christ. And Peter, he stands up at that council. And in fact, it's his last words in the book of Acts. Peter's kind of the star of the first half of the book of Acts. But in chapter 15, he has his last thing to say. And he says it publicly in this great council. Because God put him through certain experiences. So he would know and be ready to accept the Gentiles as equal as the Jew in the church. But he says, as part of this great debate that goes on, Acts 15, 11, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they are also. We are saved, we Jews are saved by grace, not by circumcision, not by Jewish practices. We're saved by grace and the Gentiles are saved by grace. We're one. Jew and Gentile saved by grace in one church, period. That was the first controversy in Christianity and it was settled by the apostles and the great churchmen of the day in a great council and they accepted that these other sheep are welcome into the church on an equal footing. Those not of the Jewish fold if you want to use Jesus language here in John 10. So um, look at Jesus language in verse 16. He's really careful in describing the union of the Jew and the Gentile. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So the other sheep will hear Jesus voice just as the believing Jews and the sheepfold did and followed Jesus out of the sheepfold. But notice Jesus doesn't use sheepfold language with regard to these Gentiles, these other sheep. He drops that out. He doesn't mention sheepfolds anymore because that represents Israel as a nation. And he's not dealing with that now. The Gentiles, the, the Gentiles are not brought into the nation of Israel when they put their faith in Christ. That's not what happens. So Jesus says Jew and Gentile will be brought into one flock. So they'll be one people. They will become one flock with one shepherd. So what do we call this flock? What does the Bible call this flock? Okay that's good. The body of Christ. Yeah the church. That's the flock. Jew and Gentile together. Right? In Christ. So we see that um, actually very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read a section from there. You might want to turn there if you want to. but Or you can listen. But Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11. Paul is speaking to Gentiles. And he says therefore remember that formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh. Who are called uncircumcision by the so called circumcision. Which is performed in the flesh by human hands verse 12 remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope 
and without God in this world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus you who formerly were far off have been brought near. Well how did that happen? By the blood of Christ he says. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. There's a lot of doctrine in there. Verse 17, and he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Verse 19, so then you, talking to Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So he dropped the sheepfold language. He's talking about God's household now. That's the church. So think about some of these expressions. Made both into one. Reconciled both into one body. Through the cross fellow citizens of God's household. You see how much he's using all kinds of illustrations to describe this unity we have in Christ. That is something very new. This is 1500 years after the law of Moses was given something new has come and Jesus brought that new thing. In this new part of God's plan Israel as a people Abraham's descendants through Isaac and, and through Jacob having as a people rejected Jesus as the Messiah and they are left to follow their own path. They can be in the sheepfold and follow their own path because they didn't come out with him. But those who do believe in Jesus that are Jews are now members of this new entity, the household of God, the church. The church is very different than Israel. The church is not a nation state. It doesn't have a government. It doesn't pass laws. It's a spiritual body which is, has no territory, it has no political power whatsoever. Rather the church exists to make Jesus known to all peoples and to care for and equip all who come to him by faith. The church is to do this in such a way that the love of Christ can be seen in our fellowship with one another and it was so great this morning hearing you, many of you describe how loving our church family is. You're doing it right that means. <laughs> because that's what we're supposed to be. You're doing it right. The church is not Israel, but in this age, believing Israel, believing Israel is part of the church until God is ready to establish Messiah's kingdom. When they asked Jesus in Acts chapter 1, is it now you're going to you're going to establish the kingdom and he says it's it's not for you to know. Well, it's not for us to know either. Here we are 2000 years later, we're still waiting. It's coming. It's going to come. But God is reaching the whole world first. It'll come in power and glory with Christ as the king of Israel in a global government established in righteousness when he returns. He'll sit on David's throne and all will be beautiful and well in the world. But in the church we bear witness to what Christ has done to all peoples and we invite all people to find salvation in him. So God intends that before Christ comes 
He will have redeemed souls from every people and tribe and nation and language on the earth. That is God's purpose and that's what's going on right now in what we call the church age. Is that a surprise? I mean if you lived before the time of Christ should that have been a surprise? Not if you knew your Bible well. I think your average Jew didn't think that way. But if you knew your Bible well, in fact, if you knew it all the way back at the beginning, you would know that that ultimately is what's going to have to happen. Because everything we see in the New Testament, everything we see happen really in the New Testament is a fulfillment of promises made to Abraham, the first Jew, the man that was called out, the, f- the father of Israel, the father of Isaac and Jacob and the whole line of human beings that came forth from him. You've probably heard me say if you've been around here many times that the Abrahamic covenant, God's promises to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, Genesis chapter 17, it drives, the Abrahamic covenant is the engine that drives the entire Bible story after those early, early chapters and everything else is the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. Everything, it drives the whole story. And a key part of that promise is Genesis chapter 12, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what God promised him. How many families? All the families of the earth. All peoples, not just Jews. In chapter 22 of Genesis, verse 18, God says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ah, so it'll be in him, but through his descendant, And that's why you're looking for this person, this Messiah to come all through the Old Testament to be that person who's going to bless all the nations of the earth. And that's why Matthew's gospel begins with Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Because that's who he is. He's the fulfillment of that. He's the seed. So the church and its mission is not a surprise because it's always been God's intention to bring salvation to all peoples all peoples everywhere through Christ and God perfectly times Jesus sacrifice and his resurrection out of which comes this creation of a new international body taking the message of God's mercy and salvation to all people and that work continues today millions today are hearing the shepherd's voice and coming to Jesus despite all the opposition that there is to it in so many different countries You know where the church is growing fastest right now? China, which is incredibly repressive and and brutal to Christians, and Iran, which is incredibly brutal to Christians. But the blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church and that's still going on today all around the world in different places. And we're seeing, seeing it in India as well. So amazing things God is doing. You know, I hear people alarmed you know sociologists keep telling us you know younger Americans are leaving the Christian faith and and that's I think true Um, there's all kinds of reasons for that culturally but they say the church is dying people you know you hear people say that the church is not no the church is not dying it might be dying in America it pretty much died in Europe and we're always sort of a few decades behind whatever Europe is doing right whatever weird thing they come up with we follow that But it could be that we've had our time. We've had the light long enough in Western nations and we've sort of said no now to that. 
but we've had so much light and now we're maybe closing our eyes and we're blinding ourselves. Maybe that is happening. But maybe our time will come again. What do we do in the meantime? We be faithful. Then we don't stop proclaiming Jesus. The Lord will have a witness for judgment and for salvation and that our part is to be faithful as witnesses to him. The good news is that he is reaping an incredible harvest all over the world. You can't moan and groan when, the, when there's a hundred million Christians in China. That's like the most exciting thing that's happened since the first century, honestly. You can't moan and groan when many Muslims are coming to Christ in Iran and in other parts of in Syria. You know, in Syria when ISIS was flourishing and slaughtering everybody, that's when the church was booming. And yes, a lot of them died, but they gave their lives for Christ and they just, they, churches were packed in Syria and they, that just doesn't happen. It hasn't happened for generations. But it was happening under that time. God is bringing people to heaven. Bringing people into the fold. And he does it as the spirit moves. And yeah maybe our time is past. But not everybody's going to be past. We bear faithful witness to Christ here. And people will still come. So we live in a time when we see that every people group. Will be populating heaven and given eternal glory there with Christ. We, we live in that time when you can see that happening around the world. It's exciting. I'm not alarmed by that. I'm thrilled by that. We'll, we will bless our people. That's our commitment. We will bless our people with the light of the gospel. And we'll help other places get the resources they need to keep the light going there as well. Okay, so we found out who the other sheep are in God's great plan. They're Gentiles all peoples. Now there's the second important thing topic that's a, on a different subject now. Okay I'm covering two different things. Hang with me for a minute. Verse 17 and 18. Verse 17. For this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my father. So let me give you some counsel if you want to be a light for Christ. Know where these verses are. Know where Jesus says this. In our culture today, modern America, 21st century America, you should know where these verses are. What's going on? Why do you say that? I'm going to tell you. Let me just be clear first about what he's saying. Jesus' life was not taken from him. He laid it down. You see how he says that? He allowed himself to be mocked and mercilessly scourged and then nailed to a cross to hang there for six hours. He easily could have avoided it. Easily. You probably remember Jesus' words to Peter when he was arrested, right? Peter drew the sword out and chopped the guy's ear off. And what did Jesus say? Put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword, he said. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. They're chomping at the bit to rescue me. And if the father says go they're coming. But he says how then will the scripture be fulfilled which, will, which says it must happen this way. He says you know a legion is in a, Ro- a Roman legion is like 6,000 
men. So 12 legions of angels, that's a lot of angels if it's anywhere close to that number. And in the Bible one angel knocked off 185,000 Assyrians overnight. So that's a lot of power coming down. (laughs) If he wants it, he doesn't want it. He's laying down his life. He's laying down his life. It has to happen, he says. It must happen. And he will not stop it. Even at the trial, so Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin, the great council in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. And the high priest actually doesn't have enough evidence really to condemn Jesus because the witnesses have been contradictory. And in Jewish law, if witnesses contradict each other, you throw out both. You don't weigh them, they, they don't count. So they're trying to get him convicted of blasphemy and it's not working out. So in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, the frustrated high priest comes to Jesus in as a midst of this trial and he says, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. He not only said I am, he said and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest because a blasphemy had been spoken tore his cloak, tore his robes which is what you do in Israel if you're really out of your head upset about something. And the high priest said what further need do you have of witnesses? We don't need witnesses now. He has just condemned himself. You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. If he had just kept his mouth shut. If Jesus had just remained silent. They really legally could not have moved forward. So the high priest asks him. If he had just kept his silent. Are you the Christ? If he could have just. If he just kept silent. They couldn't have proven anything. I am. Not only that, you're going to see me coming in glory one day. If he did not answer, they could not have convicted him. So Jesus gave them the words. He laid down his life. He didn't blow his case. Oh my gosh, he blew it. Nope. It wasn't a misstep. It wasn't a mistake. He's laying down his life. It was Passover. It was Passover. And he's the Passover lamb. And he had to be sacrificed that day. That's what he came for. To die for our sins. John chapter 10 verse 17 says. For this reason the father loves me. Because I lay down my life. So that I may take it up again. So in eternity past. The triune God ordained. That the most glorious way to deal with. Sinful human beings. Was for the son. To become human. And purchase man's redemption. With his own life. As both Paul and Peter put it. The just dying for the unjust. I think John Phillips the old preacher. He said it the right way when he said. Quote there there is full. There is full and eternal understanding. Between the father and the son. It was always understood that if God acted in creation. He would one day have to act in redemption. And if he acted in redemption. The son would have to come to earth and die and rise again. Eternal love between the father and the son ordained all these things. 
The Lord knew that at moment by moment, situation by situation, he was bathed in his father's love. That everlasting love, that love without beginning or end, found its focus in the trust and obedience of the Lord Jesus. He's so right about that. So, folks, the son works in perfect harmony with the father. He does what the father wants him to do. Redemptive history, the plan of salvation, how history is actually worked out, was planned before the world was made. And the son does his part willingly in that. The will of the son perfectly aligns with the father who sent him. The son has his own authority, he says, over all of these things. And the son uses his authority in fulfilling the father's will. I can lay down my life and I do so. I lay down my life. So why is this important to know? Why do you need to know where John chapter 10, what's going on there? Because you need to know how to respond to the enemies of the gospel today. Okay? And there are some very twisted people in churches and often they call themselves progressive Christians. That's not a political word in this context, okay? Although that might be similar too, but the word progressive suggests advancing, right? We are progressing beyond something. What are they progressing beyond? The gospel. There are churches dedicated and people in churches dedicated to advancing beyond the gospel. Denying the gospel and saying you don't need that old blood religion that you've been taught all your life. They mock it. For them God is uh, kind of a cuddly fellow. He's uh, not holy. Progressive Christians don't do holy. That's not in their vocabulary. They openly say, they say very plainly that God sending his son into the world to suffer the agonies leading to death so that we can be saved is cosmic child abuse. Cosmic child abuse. How could a father torture his son to death? Well, for one thing, Jesus isn't five years older or something. He's a grown-up. And the other thing is, Jesus had full authority in what to do with his life, and he laid it down voluntarily. That's not child abuse. That's glory. That's love. Jesus made sure by saying these things that you could never legitimately think a monstrous thought like that. That God is abusing his son. That can't be true. But it's common to say that in our culture. It's a way to knock down Christianity. That's why you need to know John 10 and what Jesus is saying right here. Jesus himself says that he went willingly in the love of the Father for our benefit because he loves us. That's what he says. And here again his words, verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Can you get clearer than that? You know, there are those rare people in the world that we hear about and maybe even know some that willingly lay down their lives for other people. Of course, it happens on battlefields all the time. And what do we do with people that do that on battlefields? We give, they're dead. But even dead, we give them medals posthumously, we call it, right? After death. 
the highest medal, in fact, most Medal of Honor winners are died doing whatever they won that medal for, but they still give them the medal. They give it to their families and they give it to them. So their names are forever honored in the roles of the military, the Marines or the Navy or whatever, it, whatever branch of service they in, that those are the guys that we admire. Those are the names we want to remember. We honor people that do that. First responders today daily at least risk dying to help other people. It happens all the time. Their very careers involve being able to risk their safety for other people. So, you know, later in chapter 15 of John's Gospel, Jesus says, greater love has no man than this. What? Than that he lays down his life for his friends. To lay down one's life is a measure of love. It's a great love. It's the greatest love he says. And we all know that instinctively to be true. What greater love is there than that and to lay down your life for the one you love or care about? I think we must say though that the love of Jesus is so much greater because his death was so much worse. Of course the physical suffering was incredibly horrible. I'm, you, know, you know the word excruciating? You talk about excruciating pain. You ever think about that word? X out of crucis, cross, that's where that word comes from. Excruciating pain is actually talking about the cross or somebody dying on a cross because the Romans used that as the most horrible, they invented it as the most horrible way of you can kill a human being, the most painful way. But that's not even it. Jesus on the cross was experiencing excruciating pain but he was also experiencing the wrath of God poured out upon sin and that's why he cried out my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from the cross? He was forsaken as the representative of all of human sin, as the, as the bearer of our load, our guilt, our crimes. We cannot imagine that kind of pain. I don't even want to imagine the physical pain of crucifixion. I don't want to think about it, but to bear the sin of the world, to take upon yourself the hell of every human being that has ever lived, you can't even understand it. It's beyond us. The fury of an infinite holy God on sin, he took that upon himself. That's how great his love is. It's you, you measure his love by that. That's how great his love is. And he did it willingly in conjunction with the Father. Follow in perfect agreement with the Father that that's what he should do. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says, for the joy set before him he endured the cross. So there was that element. He knew that at the end there would be victory. But he did experience it all. Joy did await him. But still he had, it, he had to endure its depths. He had to bear the sin of the world and he did it out of love. So what, what should you do in response to him doing that? For you. I mean what should you do? love him, return that, worship him, honor him. Think about that. If you don't know Christ, if you're in this room and you don't know Jesus yet, think about that. That's what he did for you. What's the proper response to him doing that for you? Okay, let's finish this uh, portion of chapter 10 here. Verse 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, well, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. 
A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Oh, that is where this whole story started. <laughs> there was a man born blind, and he made him well. He made him so he could see. So to say, he's crazy, he's demonic. Well, he sure doesn't sound demonic. He sounds very rational. He sounds kind of wonderful. Why are we talking about this at all? He made somebody see that has been blind from birth. That's why we're talking about it. Can a demon do that? No, I don't think a demon can do that. So John just kind of brings that out. You know, this last sort of sentence there. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? And that's kind of ends this section. Very effective way to conclude, by the way, to remind us that Jesus gave sight to this blind man. That's what started this whole conversation going on. So that action, giving sight to the blind, is a sign of who Jesus is. And that means we have to make a choice. Am I going to follow the sign where it points? Or am I going to reject it? So God is doing these things to point you to Jesus Christ. And you've got to choose if you're going to follow his sign. You have to think for yourself and say, what do I really think about Jesus? How, how am I evaluating him? How am I looking at Jesus? Am I, am I rejecting him because accepting him means I might have to change something in my life? Because that's a really warped way of thinking about it. I understand it though. I don't want to change and if I go to him I'll have to make some changes. But isn't, isn't that just a bias against him? A, a reason to not listen to the greatest story ever told? To, to acknowledge the love of God in Christ? Am I seeing clearly when I think that way? Or am I making a huge mistake? Those are just good questions and we see here this discussion among people having the same kind of thing. Some of the folks were asking the right questions and they're all thinking, who is Jesus? Oh, he's a demon and he's insane, obviously. Because he criticized those Pharisees for their self-righteousness. But the other people are saying, well, he's not just any man and demons can't do that and he doesn't sound that way. doesn't sound crazy. So, you have to choose. Well, in what follows then, those who reject Jesus out of hand ask Jesus to tell them straight up if you are the Christ tell us plainly and how Jesus answers that question we'll look at next week <laughs> let's pray Father we're so thankful Lord Jesus nobody forced you to the cross nor were you merely commanded by the Father. You had authority over your own life and you laid it down. Why did you? We know it was love, the greatest love, that you were dying for unworthy people like us. And in that we can only rejoice and thank you for the gift of life that you purchased for us. Our eyes are open. We have heard your voice and we follow. We follow with others from all the nations that you ordained. May you have all the glory, O great triune God. We pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.